from Maine Public Radio and mainepublic.org. I'm Robbie Feinberg with the news on this day in Maine, Tuesday, February 21st, 2023. This day in Maine is made possible by listener support and by Eastern Basements, a division of Maine-owned Eastern Mold Remediation. Offering basement waterproofing solutions, easternbasements.com. Governor Janet Mills and 19 other Democratic governors have launched what they're calling the Reproductive Freedom Alliance. As Patty White reports, the multi-state coalition aims to protect and expand reproductive freedom. The alliance was spearheaded by California Governor Gavin Newsom and spans the country, including New England states Maine, Massachusetts and Rhode Island. Governor Mills says states need to collaborate to strengthen and safeguard reproductive freedom. She says the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade has left more than half of people in the U.S. without safe access to abortion, and a court case in Texas threatens to strip nationwide access to one of the drugs used for medication abortion. In a joint statement, governors in the alliance call these and other efforts to criminally prosecute abortion providers and restrict access to contraception unprecedented assaults to reproductive rights. For Maine Public Radio News, I'm Patty White. U.S. Senator Angus King's 2018 re-election campaign reported hundreds of suspect accounts to social media executives. Republicans are calling the revelations, made over the weekend, evidence of widespread censorship attempts. But the reports fit a larger pattern of elected and government officials lobbying the influential platforms to remove or review content. Steve Missler has more. The accounts flagged by King's campaign included conspiracy theorists and automated accounts known as bots, but also accounts operated by conservative activists and the main Republican Party. Republicans are homing in on the latter after a spreadsheet King's campaign sent to Twitter executives four years ago was made public Saturday by Matt Taibbi, a journalist handpicked by its new owner, Elon Musk, to release internal documents that reinforce his view that former executives muzzled conservatives on its platform. Twitter's own research refutes that claim, and Musk critics say the company's internal deliberations are being selectively released without context. A spokesman for King said the spreadsheet was submitted at the invitation of Twitter officials, after the King campaign flagged a misleading video from his Republican challenger, and that it did so without the express purpose of having the accounts banned. The spokesman also said Taibbi only released a list showing suspicious conservative accounts, but that the campaign submitted liberal accounts as well. For Maine Public Radio News, I'm Steve Missler. In other news, state elections officials say a referendum campaign spearheaded by independent auto repair shops has collected enough signatures to send the issue to voters this fall. Kevin Miller reports. The ballot initiative aims to ensure that independent car repair shops can access the high-tech diagnostic systems that are built into modern cars. The proposal is part of a nationwide right-to-repair campaign focused not only on cars, but also electronics and other consumer products. Tim Winkler, president and CEO of VIP Tires and Service and one of the leaders of the referendum campaign in Maine, says today's cars often use wireless technology, known as telematics, to transmit diagnostic information. Unfortunately, many of these newest vehicles, the, the wireless data is fed automatically back to the car manufacturers, and it is not available to independent repair shops like ourselves. 
And so that's all we're asking for is a level playing field so that independent repair shops can have access to the same data that the car manufacturers and their their network of dealerships has. But the Alliance for Automotive Innovation, a trade group representing car manufacturers and industry suppliers, argues that independent shops already have access to diagnostic information and repair tools. And they warn that the proposed ballot initiative could pose a cybersecurity risk by giving aftermarket part manufacturers and retailers access to car owners' private data that's unrelated to any repairs. For Maine Public Radio News, I'm Kevin Miller. A panel of state officials, veterans groups, and others say the independent nonprofit that operates the financially troubled Maine veterans' homes must find a way to ensure all six facilities can reasonably stay open. Nicola Grisco reports. The state's veteran population is projected to drop by nearly 20 percent before the decade ends, bringing the demand for nursing care beds down with it. That's according to a new report from a panel chartered by the legislature last year, after two facilities in Caribou and Machias came under the threat of closure. But the group still recommends that all six homes stay open in their existing locations partly because there are few other alternatives for assisted living and nursing home care in Maine. The review panel has found that staffing shortages have kept facilities from being fully occupied, wages have gone up in order to attract enough workers, and Medicaid and federal Veterans Affairs reimbursement rates have not kept up with the cost of care. It recommends the implementation of a new reimbursement model, or the offering of additional services to bring in more revenue for the nonprofit that lost nearly $16 million last year. Lawmakers recently opened another investigation into Maine Veterans Homes after a whistleblower questioned its accounting practices. For Maine Public Radio News, I'm Nicola Grisco. Maine's largest hospital system struggled financially last year, with the biggest, Portland-based Maine Health, reporting an operating loss of nearly $45 million. President and CEO Andy Muller says a major factor was labor costs, which rose with inflation. That's combined with what really transpired a little over a year ago, which was the explosion of an incredibly expensive travel labor market which resulted in a number of healthcare workers uh, leaving their permanent positions to travel at a significantly increased cost to the health systems. And so those two things together conspired to really raise uh, costs. Other challenges included expenses that outpaced reimbursement rates and nursing home staff shortages that made it harder to discharge hospital patients and admit new ones. Those challenges weren't unique to Maine Health. Another hospital system, Northern Light Health of Brewer, reported an even larger loss of $130 million last year. Residential and client services staff at Portland-based Shalom House have filed a petition to form a union. The social service agency provides housing to people with mental health challenges. Union organizers say most of the agency's 150 staff support forming a union in order to improve training and boost pay. If the effort is successful, Shalom House Workers United would form as part of the main services employees association. Other social service workers who've unionized with MSEA include Preble Street, Planned Parenthood, and the ACLU. In a statement, Shalom House leaders say they don't agree that unionization is the best way to meet the needs of both clients and employees, but they'll respect the decision employees make. 
In Scarborough, the town council is considering a new ordinance that would regulate the pace and location of new housing within the community. The town has seen significant growth in recent years, driven largely by new development on the site of the former Scarborough Downs. Council Chair John Anderson says in recent years, the council has granted exemptions for many housing projects. But he says it's now considering a proposal to limit development to 25 units a year in rural zones. Over three years, 300 units would be permitted in certain growth areas and 450 units in the area around the Downs. And so we're trying to just direct the pace into that zone while we kind of grow at a slightly faster clip in some of the other areas, but then really um, maintain our conservation and rural footprint in a lot of Scarborough. The town will hold a public forum on the proposal next week and give a first reading of the proposed ordinance in April. And for a check of the weather, let's check in with meteorologist Eric Weglars. Here's your main public weather forecast for Tuesday afternoon and beyond. I'm meteorologist Eric Weglars. The winter storm watch continues west and south of Bangor. We'll see increasing clouds from west to east this afternoon. Temperatures will hold in the upper teens and lower 20s north, 30s elsewhere. Temperatures from the northeast at 5 to 10 miles per hour. We'll see overcast skies tonight. There will be a line of snow showers and isolated weak snow squalls after sunset that move west to east. Minimal snowfall accumulation likely. Lows will fall back to between 5 and 10 north. The teens across the mountains and as highs the 20s further south and west winds in the southeast at 5 to 10 miles per hour mostly sunshine increase during the day tomorrow there's the chance for a few flurries north in the afternoon temperatures will climb into the upper 20s and lower 30s north and in the mountains into the middle and upper 30s across the interior 40s south and west winds from the northwest at 5 to 15 miles per hour that's your latest main public forecast i'm meteorologist eric weglars a reminder you can always visit mainpublic.org for a detailed forecast for your listening area A century ago, the oceanographer Henry Bigelow described the blooms of phytoplankton in the Gulf of Maine. Now a study from the lab that bears his name finds that phytoplankton are in dramatic decline. And researchers say that could have a significant impact on the entire food web of the Gulf. Murray Carpenter reports from East Booth Bay for our series Climate Driven. At Bigelow Lab... Researchers Barney Balch and Catherine Mitchell are looking at a map affixed to a large table. We're looking at a chart of the Gulf of Maine, um, and right across the middle we have this line that's drawn from about Portland in Maine across to Yarmouth in Nova Scotia. That line is the route along which Bigelow researchers have been taking regular measurements for the last 25 years. They've analyzed chemical and temperature data that help describe how the waters of the Gulf are changing. One tool they use is a six-foot-long cylinder with wings. Yeah, this is an autonomous underwater vehicle or a glider. And so it's a big robot that moves up and down in a yo-yo-like pattern from the top of the ocean to the bottom of the ocean and right across the middle of the Gulf of Maine. So it's measuring a bunch of different science things as it goes. It looks a bit like a big yellow torpedo. It's got some wings on it. A yellow torpedo sampling robot with wings. (laughs) Pretty much, yeah, that's what it is. Balch says the research also involves NASA satellites, first launched in the late 1970s, that work in tandem with scientists gathering data out on the water. Balch's colleagues had begun taking samples from a commercial ferry that operated along the same stretch, but then he had a bigger idea. 
it would be uh, wonderful to actually put a, a full bona fide laboratory on the back of a flatbed truck that we could drive onto the ferry and take measurements from that. NASA funded the lab on a truck, which took its first ferry ride in 1998. Since then, the lab has taken measurements on more than 200 trips across the Gulf, all in sync with the NASA satellites. Using data collected by the satellites, the ferry, research vessels, and the glider, Balch says the Bigelow time series has demonstrated that phytoplankton productivity declined about 65% between 2001 and 2018. The part that is the most disconcerting is, you know, this is, these are the microscopic plants that you can't see with the naked eye, yet they are the bottom of the marine food web on which all life in the sea depends. Bulch says there are many factors at work that may affect phytoplankton in the Gulf of Maine. For starters, air and water temperatures are warming, and there's more intense rainfall, which can wash tea-colored water into the Gulf blocking sunlight and also stratifying the water like unmixed salad dressing. That prevents nutrients from welling up to the surface where they can fertilize the phytoplankton. These plants are no different than any other plant. Uh, they need two things. They need light and nutrients to flourish. And if you stratify that ocean, if you cap it off uh, with this, this low density water, it makes it harder for them to get the nutrients they need. On top of all this, Bulch says the Labrador Current, which used to bring cold water south to the Gulf of Maine, is now changing direction and moving more to the east. To get a closer look at what's at stake, we walk down to the dock, where a loon is quietly fishing and the water is deep enough that Henry Bigelow could have pulled his research schooner alongside. Even on a gray winter day, the water has a deep, rich, blue-green hue. And Mitchell and Bulch say there's a lot going on under there. It's a mix of all these different things. There's the phytoplankton in there, there's sediments in there, there's this dissolved humic tea-like materials from the land, that was the forest and the trees and the grass. And they're all mixed in together to give it that, that overall color that we're seeing. There's information in that color about what different types of plants are there. And, the, and that's our job is to try to decipher that. And most of us are looking at lobsters and, and whales and stuff like that. And you're looking at sort of the base of the food chain here. It is the, the bottom of the marine food web on which all life in the ocean depends. Balch says the combination of warming temperatures and declining phytoplankton suggests that the Gulf's productivity won't rebound in the immediate future. But he hopes he's wrong about that. For Maine Public Radio, I'm Murray Carpenter. And listen all this week for the latest in our climate-driven series. On Wednesday morning, Patty White will have a story on a woman from Newcastle who's been observing the weather every day for 57 years. You can see all of the stories in our series at mainepublic.org slash climate-driven. And that's today's main news. For more stories, visit mainpublic.org and join us on Wednesday morning at 11 o'clock for the latest episode of Maine Calling. I'm Robbie Feinberg. Thanks for listening.